host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me today is my good buddy Jack Hahn. Jack, what's going on, man? So I'm coming off the bench, eh, Dimitri? You are, yeah. Mondays are usually uh, devoted to uh, our pal Cam Sharon comes here in studio, and uh, we do deep dives, and unfortunately he's under the weather today, so I had to throw up the bat signal, and you so generously answered, and I'm, I'm happy to have you, man. It's always a boss when you come on the PDO cast. Yeah, well, really happy to help out uh, both you and, and, and Cam, who I work with in Toronto, obviously. He's been actually putting out some stuff that's really been uh, – getting my gear turning recently yes yeah and we are going to talk about toronto maple leafs today as well so it's a uh it's all coming together so the plan for today is we've got some topics that you and i wanted to discuss and bounce around and then hopefully at the end of the show we're going to have some time left over to take some listener questions as well so let's start with the leafs let's start talking about them because i haven't honestly spent much time on the pdo cast this season discussing them i feel like there's enough content out there uh on other platforms where you can get all the leafs news and reactions and analysis and x's and o's that you want but um you know i think i think there is a lot for us to unpack here and, and i'm, I'm kind of curious for your take on on what we're seeing from them this season well just to recap right now uh jake muzzin he's got some serious health issues may never play nhl hockey again yeah. I, I hope that he does but it, it's looking unlikely uh, TJ Brody now is going to be out for a little bit with uh, with an injury, so the the Leafs, you know, generally it's like, it's almost like a meme when people say that Leafs need defensemen, but now Leafs actually they really need defensemen. Well, there's 16 games into the season. They've already dressed 10 different blue liners so far this season. Um, I there's a lot to unpack there from the perspective of like losing Brody in particular is going to hurt them just because he's such a sort of glue guy for them. Like you can pretty much pair him with anyone in terms of their configuration on the back end, and he's going to make them look better and he's going to cover for a lot of their flaws without him. It becomes kind of trickier putting together the best combinations you can, but I still think honestly, they're going to be fine. Like when you're, when you've, when you've got that ultra charged third pairing of Rasmus Sandin and, and Timothy Lilligren, uh just crushing it, I, I, I think you're going to be okay. Well, uh, I'm I'm actually not that uh, optimistic just because now they're running a top pair of Morgan Riley and then Jordy Ben. That's right. Yeah, who's a lefty playing his offside. Now Jordy Ben has played his offside, uh, I think in Dallas and Montreal, and he's actually done okay. Um, but this is a guy who's in his mid 30s who who's just played one game. Granted, he scored and and he was he looked really good, but. Um, you know, it's it's getting a little bit shaky there. Well, here's the thing. The reason why I say it's not that big of an issue, especially in the short term, is because this Le- this Leafs team has so fundamentally changed the way they play, uh, both this season and over the past couple. And I think that's kind of why I want to discuss them with you because I feel like the way they're generally kind of covered and talked about is so irritating to me for any number of reasons, but especially because it feels like no one who's actually paid to speak about them on a big platform has even watched the Leafs game over the past like two years. Like it's it's a lot of kind of regurgitating the same talking points of, oh, this team, you know, they're they're so offense first. Can they play enough defense when it matters most? And in reality, when you watch this version of the Leafs team play, that couldn't be sort of further from the truth in terms of stylistically their approach and how they're playing these games and what their strengths and weaknesses actually are. Yeah, absolutely. And 
I think it's, again, it, it goes back to maybe uh, perception versus reality. And the reality is this is one of the best forechecking teams in the league, at least in the past you know season, season and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, one, of course, one of the best teams that creating off the cycle. But actually off the rush, they're, they're pretty middling, I would say. They are. And and that that's why I say like we need to recalibrate based on new information that presents itself, right? Like they're just simply no longer that freewheeling run and gun offense first team that they were in the early stages of this group's kind of identity when they first came together about five years ago, right? Like if you look at their statistical profile right now, they're twenty six and five on five offense on a per minute basis, just behind the Philadelphia Flyers. They're twenty third in all situations scoring overall. Now, I don't think those two figures are necessarily representative of the talent level moving forward because they've got a really low 5-on-5 shooting percentage. Austin Matthews has two 5-on-5 goals so far, I believe, after scoring 38 last year. And neither of them were actually like clean shots. One was a tip off a point shot. The other was kind of jamming it in uh, on the side of the net. So you figure he's going to eventually start actually beating goalies cleanly and scoring goals himself. And so that's going to right itself. But this team is kind of gradually i think over the past couple years changed its identity and it's interesting that the kind of conversation around them hasn't really caught up to that in my opinion yeah and um you know speaking of our uh, our buddy cam he he put out a a tweet uh suggesting you know a couple of possible options that the Leafs could look at on defense now that you know now that they have these these injuries and he mentioned Dmitry Kulikov and Scott Mayfield. And this is generally the direction that the Leafs have, have gone in the past few years. They've gotten older, they've gotten tougher, they've gotten slower, and they've gotten, I would say, less skill. Yes. Yeah, I think I think that is certainly fair to say. Um, you know, that is the potential concern that I have about this team moving forward, all the numbers aside. Like when you watch them play these days, how much more plotting and methodical they are when they're attacking. Um, you know, they used to kind of just be this like shot of adrenaline in the early stages of, of this course tenure. And now, aside from the occasional kind of dose of brilliance from Willie Nylander, where he just kind of goes by himself, everything they create seems so much more intentional. And I'm kind of curious for your take on that from like a just approach perspective, right? We can we can talk about the the negatives in terms of creating yourself and then kind of the positives in terms of the trickle down effect, how it improves your team defense. But it feels like for them to create offense these days, if I want five, it's like, they just basically have to get it low, kind of grind it out and almost like will the puck into the net, as opposed to just sort of playing this, this open style of hockey. And I, I, I feel like whether it's a positive uh, net positive or net negative, just in terms of the offensive side of things, like it's a pretty clear step in the wrong direction for me. Well, it's, it's interesting. Like, I don't know what the exact quote is, but essentially what I'm thinking is like history doesn't change. Only the names do mm. because basically, you know, like I, I haven't worked in Toronto for a couple of years now, but it seems like we're right back to like 2017 when the Leafs were trotting out, you know, Matt Martin and Ron Hainsey and Roman Polak. And it's, it's like, you know, where, whereas they had a number of kids who were ready to contribute in the AHL or players that they weren't playing as, as much as they should have. Um, and, and I think they're right back to the same spot. Like, if I go back to the whole, like, 
finding some more defensemen to, to replace Muzzin and Brody. Well, if they trade for a guy like Scott Mayfield, who, by the way, is six foot five, he's right-handed, plays very tough in front of the net, has pretty decent shot impacts, plays tough minutes, like, you know, in a vacuum, a really good option for this team. But, you know, like Scott Mayfield's 30 years old, and if he gets hurt, then what then, right? Like, the, the, the thing that I keep thinking of when I watch this team now is if you don't bring up some some Marley's players and you don't give them minutes now, well, they're going to get minutes in the playoffs once the vets get hurt because inevitably uh, vets, you know, older players, especially those with injury histories, they will get hurt in the postseason and then you're going to have to bring up kids. And then if you don't trust them now, you're not going to trust them later and that's going to hamstring your entire team, especially if you're looking to, you know, play with the puck and create offense. So, you know, for, for instance, they brought up, Matt Hollowell right now to skate as a 7th Like, for me, if he doesn't play this week, um, that that's not a good sign at all because that means that they don't trust him to, to play any sort of minutes. And, you know, Hollowell's already 24. He, he's an undersized D who moves the puck extremely well, can defend with his, his skating and his stick. Not a big guy whatsoever. Uh, but, you know, now's the time to see what they have because the further this season goes along, um, the more they're going to run into this this problem of getting slower, getting older, getting hurt, and they're not going to have enough time to recover. Yeah. Well, I think what's really interesting about them is their expected goal numbers offensively still look fine because, you know, as a team philosophy, they don't really don't waste any time with point shots, and they still funnel a lot of their shot attempts through high-danger areas from in tight around the net. And so I think like the, the the specific geographical location of where they're shooting from is going to result in high expected goal totals and they have talented players. So they're going to turn those shots into goals. But I think, you know, the, the, the way, like the part of this equation that is, is so fascinating to me is over the past five years, there's pretty clearly been a trajectory they've been on in terms of slowing it down and specifically attacking less off the rush as a result right if you look back at that sort of 2017 era that you're mentioning 2016 2017 2018 or so they were first in the league in terms of the pace they were playing at a five on five in terms of just you know shot events that were going both back and forth and and they were kind of embracing that faster style this year they're down to 24th in terms of five on five pace if you look at i asked our buddy kevin woodley to get into his uh clear sight analytics platform to give us some rush rush data in 2019-20 the Leafs were averaging over 10 rush chances per 60 minutes of play which was fourth best in the league 2021 they were third best then it goes down to this year where they're averaging just 6.6 rush chances per 60 which is 16th best in the league and that doesn't really line up with the names that you'd think they have in terms of the way they should be playing and and I and the question that raises for me is how much of that do you think is just kind of a natural byproduct, as you're saying, of the players getting older and kind of their habits changing along the way. and that, Or how much of it do you think is an actual calculated approach by the Leafs to sort of compensate for whatever perceived flaws they've had that have fallen short in the in the playoffs and needing feeling like they need to play that way in the regular season to kind of change their, change their outlook? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of criticism, you know, toward just NHL decision makers in general for being overly safe and sticking with players that, you know, quote unquote, we know are bad 
versus players who are, are maybe younger, inexperienced, and we, who we don't know are bad yet. And I think that that's that's what I'm seeing with the Leafs. Like the example, the prime example this season is Cali Yonkroak. So, you know, I I don't know Yonkroak. I I don't have anything against him personally, but I just think that his usage is a is case in point of you know this uh, of Leafs decision makers being more risk averse than ever because this is a player who's at 45% course right now, who's basically hamstrung whatever line he's found himself on. But because he's, you know, quote unquote, uh, a, a good teammate, a hard worker, a, a guy who's trusted, he keeps getting minutes. Whereas, you know, guys like Mulligan or Robertson or you name it are getting rotated in and out of the, the lineup, you know, based on merit. Yeah, I will say that they, they seem to have recently kind of stumbled upon whether it's Aston Reese and Kampf playing with one of Mulligan or Engvall. Basically, whenever they've done that, it's worked, and it kind of makes sense because those last two and Mulligan and Engvall are kind of more adept at carrying the puck up the ice and kind of doing the heavy lifting that way and just leaving all the defensive responsibilities and more traditional defensive responsibilities to, to Aston Reese and Kampf. But yeah, with the way they started the year with their bottom six, I, I thought it was a big whiff because you look at the success that group had last year for them, and not only did it provide actually an infusion of speed that might have been missing in the top six, but it also helped them win so many territorial battles where they'd basically start in their own zone. Throughout a shift, they'd chip away and get it to where they wanted to tire out the opposition, and then all of a sudden, the top line would be coming out uh, in, a, in an advantageous position because they'd be going against opponents who were already burnt out and kind of reeling and playing on their heels and instead they kind of went in a bit of a different direction this summer in trying to kind of cobble together that top six after some of the players they lost and the the result was not a good one yeah and and i mean in, in years past like that was the whole idea of having you know pilot ennis on the fourth line who could drive play or trevor moore or jason spezza or you know pierre engball like like you name it this year the leafs really they haven't had that bottom six advantage and the top six you know i i uh i was looking on twitter with, with some of the questions that we've received uh you know someone was asking you know who could the Leafs insert into the their top six and like you know they need an actual legit top six player, not like a Michael Bunting who can play up and play with players who who are top scorers or an Alice Kerfoot. But I'm talking about a guy, let's say, um, you know, someone like Val Nishushkin, who's like an entirely an entirely different class of player, or Andre Burakovsky, or you know, someone someone like that who's a legit top six player instead of a middle or bottom six player who's a filler. Yeah. No, I agree with that. There was another question in there, which I thought was a really kind of astute one by a listener to to latch onto and to ask us about was, you know, I think where that distinct lack of rush element or attacking team speed has become an, a, a specific issue for them in these games has been late in these tight talk contests against good defensive teams where that team, if they're up, can all of a sudden you know, intentionally sit back in a defensive posture and basically just put up a series of roadblocks either through the neutral zone in transition or in front of their own net. And they haven't really had a way to to problem solve for that. I remember you and I, right after game seven against Tampa Bay last year, had a conversation about this. And it was, it was kind of eye-opening to see how Tampa Bay basically just 
put up a line uh, at their own blue line and was like, you are not carrying this puck into the zone and force them to keep dumping it in and wasting time. And they were never able to really cobble together anything of meaning. And then in one of their most recent games against Pittsburgh, I saw a very similar phenomenon where in that third period, once Pittsburgh went up, it, it felt like they had no real kind of tangible way of creating offense against that. I'm kind of curious for your take on sort of finding ways to creatively problem solve for those neutral zone traps in, in those specific game states and kind of how you work around that because that's something that it's whatever in a regular season game, but in a playoff series will come back up again. And if you don't have an answer for it, it's going to be tough to overcome. Well, the, you, you need you need legs, you need hands, you, you need skill. You need and, body parts? And gener- you, you need body parts. And, yeah. and generally speaking, like if you go back throughout hockey history and you watch, you look at teams that overachieve in the playoffs or win cups, these are teams that are on the younger end of the spectrum because players come out of nowhere, right? And then they, they, they make a reputation for themselves, whereas players with established reputations – uh, maybe they're they're not able to play at that level anymore, and they kind of fall off. Like last last year again, if we just go back to Colorado, the most recent example, uh, you know, Bowen Byram and Alex Newhook step up in big ways. Yeah, well, I, you basically, I mean, for many for any number of reasons, but you need you need those established star players and then you need to find a way to supplement them with young cheap players who can come in and, and provide a spark not necessarily in lead roles but in kind of you know those depth roles and then when injuries come up they can potentially move up the lineup but yeah i mean that's that's that goes without question like you 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 need that next wave coming in that can help supplement your existing stars yeah and and i think the leafs have maybe two three or even four of these players on the marlies right now i i can't exactly say who they are but I'm sure that there's there's a handful of players as call-ups who could outperform players who are getting into the lineup today. So when when you say something like that from an organizational perspective, who like where is that line of communication falling apart then, right? Because I imagine if if you're a GM who has you know either drafted well or has found creative ways to add talent into your into your minor league system, into your prospect pipeline, like you'd like to see those guys come up and play because it'll 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 you know it'll validate you it'll vindicate you it'll make you look good. Um, is it is it a matter of like a coach just you know trusting players that he's more familiar with and not willing to put his own name uh, to that kind of uncertainty that comes with young players who've never played in the league? So so this is the super strange thing because we we normally would think that teams would overvalue their own players, right? Like there, there's this well-known psychological bias where uh, you like what you have and you tend to overvalue what you have as opposed to, you know, things that are kind of freely available on the market. Mm-hmm. But I actually find that in, in some instances, it's kind of the opposite where maybe you undervalue the players that you, you've had around for a long time. And, and again, I go back to Mac Hollowell, you know, like Kyle Dubas and Sheldon Keith had him in Sault Ste. Marie. And then uh, the Leafs drafted um, Hollowell as an overager to mostly to play in the AHL. He's been called up a few times, but never actually gone to a game. And, and I wonder, you know, if Hollowell was on another team and would have gotten maybe 20, 30, 50 NHL games, you know, maybe he would be seen differently. But because we're, you know, as a front office or as a coaching staff, we know this player so well and, and we've never trusted him before. 
it, it goes to reason that maybe we still shouldn't trust them now. And I, I don't think that's entirely correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I treat my fantasy teams, Jack. I'm always, uh, I'm always super critical of my guys and I'm always out there trying to, trying to acquire other people's players that they probably don't value as much. Yeah. It's, it's like the grass is always greener yeah. uh, phenomenon. Right. So again, you know, now we see Jordy Ben on, on the first pair with Morgan Riley. Let, let's see how this goes. But, you know, here's an example of basically the new lease philosophy, which is, you know, we have our stars and we're just going to complete kind of the lineup with these older, experienced, uh, established guys who, whose hockey is, is most likely behind them. Hmm. All right. Is there anything else on, on the Leafs that you figure we should touch on here before we uh, move on to listener questions? Uh, I think that's about it for me. I mean, I, I get quite fired up when I talk about it still, just because, you know, I've, I've worked with these people and, and, and I've been in this environment and I just think, you know, it would be such a shame if they, if they lost their window of contention because they kind of regressed back to, you know, traditional hockey thinking and, and kind of just became another team. I, I think that'd be a shame. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so strange. Yeah. The, the, this idea, it's like, you got to keep getting tougher and tougher. And then you just see, it's like, well, when our fourth line is Kyle Clifford and Wayne Simmons, they're clearly not two of our 12 best players and we're hurting ourselves as a result of dressing them and having them in the lineup. And then, and so it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. It's kind of a part of the expectations, part of the market. It's part of when you have that playoff failure, you're going to sometimes kind of overreact or, or overcompensate to the critiques that you get as a result of it, as opposed to, you know, starting with a clean slate and, and actually just being able to, utilize who you believe the best players are regardless of kind of being defined by whatever role they have to play in the lineup yep um okay jack we're gonna take a break here and then when we come back uh we've got a bunch of really fun listener questions that we're gonna dive into so um let's take that break here you are listening to the hockey pdo cast here on the sportsnet radio network here on the hockey pdo cast joined by jack Hahn. jack we did the first block talking about the leafs we're gonna have some fun here and close out the show by taking some listener questions i've got a question here from luke hawking who asks what does effective forechecking look like to you Oof, uh that's a really difficult question to answer because it's going to be very different depending on whether you're an analyst or a coach <laughs> or or a player right okay well let's take it step by step because Right. Okay. So, for, for, from a from a analytical point of view, you know the the purpose of forechecking is to prevent your opponents from leaving their zone in control of the puck. Right. Yep. So we're looking for at a team level a team that's able to force a lot of turnovers up ice, or force a lot of dumpouts, and whatever formation that's going to facilitate that or whichever players are going to facilitate that, well, that's what good forechecking looks like. Okay. Well, why, why, would, why would your answer be different from a coaching or um, or a player level then? It seems like it would kind of fall so, in line okay. with that, no? Right. So w- one of the trade-offs that you're making it, it, when you're building kind of your, your team's forecheck is – do you finish your checks, for instance, or mm, do you right. uh, peel off and then have 
a second player replace you. And from a player's point of view, let's say you're a defenseman trying to make that breakout play, uh, obviously you would feel a lot more pressure psychologically if someone was coming in to put you through the boards every single time you try to make a play. However, it doesn't mean that uh, that forechecking approach is actually more effective at preventing you from from making these exit plays. So maybe over a seven-game series, the fact that you're getting hit 5, 10, 15 times a game means that you're not going to feel your legs and your torso anymore. But over the course of a regular season, you'll find that the most effective forechecking teams are actually not the ones are the most physical yeah certainly i think i think our perception of that or the way we think about it has changed quite a bit over the past couple of years i mean i i think the gold standard for this now in terms of forechecking the impact it can have is that most recent example which you you cited earlier in our conversation with what val Nichushkin did to the lightning in the stanley cup final last year right where he just completely obliterated almost single-handedly every plan they might have otherwise had for what they wanted to do exiting their zone. And now it was a unique situation where they didn't have the personnel on the blue line to beat him as an F1 and skate the puck out of the zone himself. So he almost didn't even need to factor that into the equation of like what they could possibly do. And so eliminating that allowed him to basically just go aggressively after whoever had the puck and using his reach, he was able to basically cause disruptions and turnovers all over the ice. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned that kind of accumulation effect of, all right, if you get hit over the course of a game or series, you're going to start feeling it physically. I think dealing with someone's reach like that, where they're just kind of deflecting and poking away everything and getting in the passing lanes has just as much of a mental effect on you where all of a sudden now you start second guessing those passes. Maybe you're clutching onto it and you're not just you know freely firing that puck up the ice you're, you're overthinking it and that can lead to even more mistakes down the road that might not even have anything to do with the way a guy like Valentrushkin was forechecking in the moment but it's kind of a byproduct of what he'd done already earlier in the game and in the series so I think d- disrupting a game that way as a forechecker is is almost what you have to do in today's game yeah and I think there's a lot more respect uh, for that that sort of a skill set where you have maybe a bigger guy but who's not super physical and who's you know quote unquote flying by a lot instead of finishing his checks but we see that statistically it's effective and, and coaches and players and teams are catching on to that and and they're deploying more of those players and they're they're no longer essentially penalizing players for not finishing their hits yeah i mean I, there's two distinct qualities and then when they come together they make for an absolutely ruthless four checker but one of them is that reach for me that you can use to disrupt and put get in in passing lanes and tip pucks and the other is just the motor in terms of being able to give multiple efforts and keep hounding the puck carrier and not really giving up as opposed to just you know going for broke once and if you miss out all oh, you're peeling off and then going going for a change or letting someone else inherit that responsibility and so Nachushkin was a kind of a great example of of that now he's there's a reason why the Avalanche were comfortable giving him the contract that they did, and he's a hell of a player, and he does a lot more than that. He's very unique in that regard. I don't think that's necessarily a reasonable expectation to just assume every four checker to be able to do that. There's a reason why he was so effective. Um, but that's kind of what I'd be looking for in terms of my four checking, much more than that sort of traditional element you mentioned, which was going in and just making sure you, you, you throw a hit and make them feel it. Because I, I really think in today's game, that that's not going to be nearly as much of a deterrent as you might think. Yeah, well said. Um, it's interesting, though, because I, I mentioned 
and I think you and I have spoken about this in the past, how much I value reach as a physical trait, the more and more I think about it, the more and more I see. And, and, you know, I cited a player like Matias Samuelson, for example, defensively, who uses his wingspan so well to, to defend. And I think it's, it's, it's vital for being a, a great neutral zone defender in terms of defending against the rush and being able to cover your own blue line. But I got a question here from, um, from a listener that kind of notes a conversation that I've had in the past about smaller defensemen and wondering whether there's stuff that they can do beyond just being undervalued just because they're, they're smaller that they can actually do better than big guys in terms of defending that maybe we don't necessarily value enough as well. Um, do you have anything on on kind of this idea that smaller defensemen might actually be able to defend better in certain instances beyond just, I guess, being more mobile than uh, than their bigger counterparts? So I think smaller players in general, um, first of all, there's a survivorship bias uh, by that. You know, if you're not incredibly skilled and smart and brave, you're not even going to sniff the NHL if you're, you know, five foot eight or, yes. or below, right? So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is if you if you watch, you know, Cole Caulfield or, uh, you know, players kind of around, like, around that stature, like they do a really good job of getting under bigger, taller defensemen, mm-hmm. and um, you know they can kind of win these battles because they're closer to the puck. They can initiate contact again and then cut through the defender's hands. And it's easier to do that if you're a smaller player and you're not afraid of initiating contact. Uh, On the flip side, if you look at the league as a whole, there aren't a whole lot of defensemen under 5'10". And I think... You know, the, the the market is a pretty good indication that there there are a lot of significant downsides to being very short if you're a defenseman in terms of not having the reach or in terms of being, you know, not as heavy on the puck. Um, certainly, I think, you know, in isolated instances, uh, these smaller skilled defensemen, they can do a really good job of defending. But as a whole, it, you know, if you look at the direction that, let's say, teams such as Montreal are going toward, or Buffalo, um, it, it seems like teams still value that that size and the heaviness on the back end. And, you know, in front of the net sometimes, it's, it's really difficult to replace, you know, pure heft in terms of moving people out of the way. Yeah, I guess what, you know, what Buffalo has done, though, is they're not, they're not at all sacrificing mobility in particular, but I guess you could argue skill as well in, in those you know, preferences or priorities, right? So now to get those types of players, if you're going to get a skilled guy who's who's six foot five, six foot six, you're probably going to have to be investing absolutely elite draft capital to do so, right? Like it's it's going to be tough to to find that as sort of an undervalued asset that you get for free as a as a free as a you know unsigned undrafted free agent or something like that. So I guess that that would kind of go into the calculus. But yeah, I, I think for the most part, if you can get a player who can who can defend physically one on one without limitations while also being able to keep up in open ice, that would be ideal. In most instances, you generally have to kind of pick pick one over the other and then pinch your nose in, in the other circumstances. But I, I wonder with smaller defensemen, you know, you mentioned how, you know, generally to make it into the NHL, if you're going to be undersized, you have to have a pretty high skill level. I wonder if it would give you a bit of an advantage defending that we don't necessarily think about as much just because you not only are you seeing the ice better, but just as a skill player yourself, when you have the puck, you would do something. And then when you don't have it and you're defending, you can kind of put yourself in those shoes easier in terms of sniffing out what the opponent's going to try to do, as opposed to if you're just kind of like a big plotting physical defender 
who has no idea what to do with the puck. It's it's tougher to kind of understand or put yourself in the shoes of the opponent in terms of what they're actually trying to accomplish. Yeah, and and the whole idea of being one step ahead because you have that hockey IQ, like that's exactly what Jared Spurge has been doing for so many years. That that's how Adam Fox is able to play tough minutes and still thrive. And, you know, that's what Chris Letang did for a number of years, and and only recently do you see him really slowing down. So, so so it's absolutely a must if you're going to be undersized. Okay, um, random task sixty eight asks. Biggest tactical change you've seen teams adopt in the last five to ten years? I mean, you could you could take this any number of directions, but um, what do you have for this one? Uh, well, ten years is a long time. Yes. Okay. Let's 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 say yeah. Let's say five more more likely. For the past five years. Um, the the last five years, I would say uh, there there's a few, but I, I see more teams playing man to man in the defensive zone now than before. Uh, less zone, more aggressive. I see teams moving their F3 higher and higher. So instead of having that third forward in the pile battling for the puck, now he's standing kind of closer to the Ds as um, almost like a third defenseman and then attacking downhill on opportunity. So it, it actually mirrors a lot of what's been happening in soccer. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you think about like you know Messi uh, in his heyday in Barcelona, like he was kind of playing that high F3 role, like where he was running into space instead of, you know, getting defended and just standing there looking for headers. Hmm. So, um, yeah, like the, the, those two would be a big one for me. Okay. Well, let's, let's get into that. Cause I know you were going to, you're going to write about that if you haven't already, right. The, the kind of differences between man to man and zone defense. Yeah. Um, and, and it's funny because it, it, it's such a basic concept if that, you know, soccer fans or basketball fans, would be familiar with, but I feel like in hockey, it's, it's very misunderstood or it's very poorly explained. Uh, and the nature of the game makes it so that basically no team is ever playing pure man to man and no team is ever purely playing zone either. It's, right. it's, it's always sort of a mixed coverage that has these specific trigger points, which again, it varies from team to team, but you can see some overall themes. So I have a question for you then about that. Is would you is it fair to say that if you have like you if you don't have a certain let's say talent level in terms of your personnel um, defensively, it, would bigger issues pop up if you're trying to go more heavy towards man to man just because it can lead to more kind of catastrophic mistakes where players are just blowing assignments and getting mixed up in lack of communication or or does it kind of vary depending on uh, depending on the system. Okay, so so this is I I think it's it's a common uh, it's a common concern with man to man and it's a very valid one, but the problem is is that you're always making trade offs when you're playing defense, right? And mm-hmm. if you commit to zone defense, which basically means that you're just standing in strategic areas, you're either waiting for the other team to shoot the puck right into you, or to bobble a pass so that. The, the puck just leaves the zone. Like you're never going to be able to make defensive stops if you play pure zone because you're just waiting for the other team to run into you. Right. So, was I was I fair to say that then, or 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 do you disagree with it? But I I, I mean, look, you play man to man because it allows you to pressure pucks and to force these one on one turnovers. Right. That you can then turn into zone exits. Uh, there was one goal that Boston scored against Vancouver. Vancouver has been, have been defending in their zone for about a minute. 
and they went to pure zone defense where basically all five players just packed a slot, and then eventually Boston recovered three pucks. They moved it around, and then they scored. Uh, Connor Clifton came downhill and slapped it by the goalie who was screened. Yeah. So this is the kind of issue you run into in zone defense, which is you're basically on survival mode, and eventually you bleed out. Yeah. Whereas if you're playing man-to-man and you're over-aggressive, you get beat back to the net, you, you kind of die you know, via blunt force trauma. Yeah, I, I thought you were actually going to bring up the example. They had a very similar instance in the game before that against the Leafs, where it was... It was kind of a scramble in front of the net, and then eventually, after a long shift, there was just such a breakdown, and then it wound up with like a, a wide open. I think it might have actually been Jordy Ben's goal, where he kind of came down and was just uncovered yes. and, just, and, just, and just able to score because after a long shift, there was like there was just such chaos and, and miscommunication, and, and it was like almost like they were yeah get, getting closer and closer into packing in front of their own net, and then eventually, there was just like they were done, and, and Jordy Ben was able to skate into one and just score very easily. Yeah, and, and one of the, the nuances I think is, is really that you've you got to consider as a coach is this is why your best defenders should be your best, uh, well, should be your fittest players because the, the more fit you are, the more you're able to pressure even if you've been hemmed in for a long time, right? So you can still sort of try to play man-on-man defense even though you've been added for 40, 50, 60 seconds, whereas if, you, if you're gassed after 30 seconds, basically the only thing you can do is to fall back and stand in the slot somewhere so that you're at least preventing a free carry into the high danger area. Right. But ideally, again, um, you would have kind of the physical conditioning and, and and the stamina to, to keep pressuring for extended periods of time. Yep. That's well said. All right. Moldy turnip. What a name asks. Um, what's the most overrated statistic, whether it's for an individual or for a team, you're not allowed to say plus minus. Sorry for uh, sorry for Hank. Oh man, oh man, points. Yeah, with points, especially for one? defensemen. Yeah, yeah, I would say points for a defenseman because because a lot of these points uh, for defensemen you will get either on the power play or just because you just kind of touched the puck before forward made a, a highlight real play to score. So points for defensemen. Yeah, yeah, I would say like on ice goals for defensemen is much more valuable or telling in terms of a offensive ability for a defenseman and just because if their team's scoring a lot while they're out there chances are they're probably doing at least something at one end of the ice that's allowing they're putting them in position to do so whereas yeah pure raw points is without context is 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 very useless um yeah i guess for what about from a team perspective i guess i would go just like raw raw shot attempts i mean i guess throughout the regular season if you have high volume chances are you have the puck a lot and eventually you're going to play poor teams or bad goalies and those shot attempts will transfer at least to some correlation to, to goals scored. But especially come the postseason, I feel like raw shot attempts and even raw shots on goal without accounting where they're coming from or what's happening to create them is almost entirely useless. Well, I would say especially now because teams are getting better and better at, at not wasting pucks at at least gaining the offensive zone. So you know, you you could very well step across the blue line, throw it throw it on net, and then you know go about your business. Yes, uh, because te- teams now, you know, they it, it seems like there's a way better understanding that you know Corsi drives future results, and that you know zone entries drive future results. So at least they're not getting rid of the puck too prematurely, and, and now they're just kind of throwing it on net from the offensive zone as opposed to throwing it out of the D zone. So I'm curious about this. You, you know, you mentioned soccer and how some of the tactical advancements have have 
kind of come from them or mirrored them over the years. We see this much more clearly at three-on-three, where puck possession truly is at the utmost premium, and you don't want to give it away unless you're creating the best scoring chance possible, basically, because you might not get it back. Um, Do you think at five-on-five we'll see more teams exploring with actually intentionally leaving the zone and regrouping and being able to kind of... um, you know, intentionally manufacture more downhill rush attempts that way, as opposed to like I I can think of very few examples where I've seen teams actually do that. It feels like you're you're much more likely to actually cycle it in, and then if you're if you're getting tired and you can't go for a change, just kind of force a face off by throwing it at the goalie, as opposed to doing that kind of more premeditated regroup where you either pass it back to your goalie or you actually pass it out of the zone or skate it out and allow yourself to to change. So there, there is. I, I would caution against kind of importing soccer tactics wholesale because th- there are lots of particularities in hockey. You know, we we have fewer players. We, we the, the pace of play is faster. The field is smaller. We have yep. boards, which are really important. Uh, but but certainly, I think more and more teams now understand the importance of holding on to possession, of circling back, building speed. I was at uh, the Montreal Canadiens practice today, and a lot of their drills are very forward-thinking in terms of, you know, having players choose between circling back and continuing uh, a rush attack, or you know, using movements from the outside to the inside in the offensive zone. Um, yeah, I mean, like you know, in terms of results, I think Montreal has been surprisingly good, and I think the way that they practice is is a very healthy indicator of, of where this team is going. Uh, that's a good plug. Uh, I think t- on tomorrow's show, I'm actually having Andrew Berkshire on to talk about the, the Montreal Canadiens. So that's a, that's a good little, little plug there from you. Nice. Um, all right, one final one here from Flyer Die asks, do you feel that expected goal stats should be adjusted for game state given the teams generally change their tactics based on whether they're leading or trailing? I think a much more interesting component of that is is that exact conversation about changing your tactics when you're leading and trailing and how kind of score effects influence the way you're either deploying your players or the way you're actively attacking. Um, do you have any thoughts on kind of countering that and actually being able to basically maintain your your premium or your ideal version of the way you want to play regardless of whether you're up by three or down by three? I actually think that uh, as a whole, the the league has gotten way better at managing score states. Like, you know, M- Michael Blake McCurdy did some research a couple of years ago that found that certainly uh, score effects, uh, as we know, you know, trailing teams, uh, they do control the game and they do get a bigger proportion of shots, but it doesn't necessarily translate into goals at at the same proportion. So by and large, it seems like NHL teams do a pretty good job of, uh, finding a balance between still playing the game that got them there versus being a little bit safer. Hmm. So, so I, I actually don't think it's, it's as much as an issue as it used to be, especially now that teams have gotten away from dressing enforcers on their fourth line or guys who, who can't play with the puck at all. Like they're, they're still rolling four lines that can play. And even though they're getting out a little bit more, they, they may be just choosing to retreat into their own zone and, you know, set up their defensive structure to avoid those rush chances. And at the end of the day, like, they're, they're still doing, for the most part, a decent job at holding on to leads. Uh, you clearly did not watch last year's Dallas Stars under Rick Bonus enough. 
by and large. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think that's going to be it for the questions. We got a bunch of, uh, or not not a bunch, but we got some, including uh, our pal Jack Fraser asked about the, the Florida Panthers. I think last time I had you on, we we kind of deferred this as well. I feel like we should actually do a proper, proper kind of tape study and deep dive of them because it's actually a very interesting conversation to have after the coaching change they had and how much of an outlier they were last year. And then now statistically, they're also being an outlier for, I think, you know, slightly different reasons under Paul Maurice. And I'd kind of like to actually just go fully into their tape and and crunch it before we have this conversation. But I think this is something that that you and I should kind of assign ourselves as a homework assignment. Yeah. And, and I still think it's more of a developing story because, because I I don't know where, where this team is going. Yeah. Yeah. It's only been 15 15 games, right? Let's, let's give it 25 game mark. And then I feel like we can kind of revisit it. Um, All right, Jack, I'll let you plug some stuff. What, um, where can people check out your work? What have you been working on? And I think most importantly, when is um, when is Hockey Tactics 2023 coming out? Okay, so uh, in case you've never heard of me before, uh, I used to work in the Toronto Maple Police organization. I, I now coach uh, as a consultant with uh, several different teams at the PHF level and in, in the Swiss League. Uh, on Twitter, you can find me at J-H-A-N-H-K-Y. Uh, today, I just posted a thread with videos of the drills that I saw at the Montreal Canadiens practice. Uh, really interesting stuff if you're a hockey coach or a hockey parent. So uh, check me out on Twitter. And then any announcements about you know my future uh, e-books or my uh, most recent newsletter articles, you will find it on my Twitter. So just check me out there. Okay. Well, first off, I think 100% of people listening to today's show have heard of you before based on how uh, frequently you've been on the podcast. But secondly, you you neatly deflected that in terms of providing an actual timeline. And I asked selfishly for myself because I'm curious when it's coming out as opposed to uh, informing the listeners. Uh, January 2013 for Hockey Tactics 2013. 2023, and, uh, I mean? Sorry, yeah. tw- 2023. Yeah. My God, long decade. Yes. But yeah, so Jan- next January, and uh, Dimitri, you'll you'll be one of the first to get a copy to review and to discuss, and uh, we'll, we'll talk back. We'll certainly be doing a, a deep dive of it. Can you give me a teaser of uh, what kind of main concepts you're interested in focusing on this this year? Because was it 2021 or 2022, the, the one that had like the, you know, how Kucherov receives the puck and how uh, Pavelski, Robertson, and Hintz work together? Because I think that one was like one of my favorite reads. So that's 2021, okay. uh, but the, the the next one is going to be the five on five tactics of all 32 teams, also with uh, special teams content and uh, a, a few essays on how to best adapt those tactics to uh, create better hockey for you and your team. I love it. So people who uh, enjoyed today's conversation, it was like a nice little taster for what they can expect in that book. So highly recommend that. Jack, this was a blast. We're going to certainly have you back on soon, and hopefully we'll do that uh, Florida Panthers deep dive. Thank you to everyone for listening to the show. If you're enjoying it, you can continue to help us out by going and smashing that five-star review button on whichever podcast platform you listen to us on. And we will be back soon with more of the Hockey PDO cast here on the Sportsnet Radio Network.